Acts chapter 9. So we've, uh, we were going through the book of Acts, and we made it through Acts chapter 9, verse 22. I think we left there somewhere in the middle of July, toward the end of July. And uh, we're going to come back to Acts and uh, continue our journey through the book of Acts, which is where we were today uh, as we were reading with the kids so just to give you kind of a, um, um, an update of where we are. So Acts chapter 9 begins with Saul going to Damascus. Let me back up another chapter. Acts chapter 8 introduces us to the persecution that arose in Jerusalem. So up until Acts chapter 8, the church was in great shape. They were all happily ever after, living there in Jerusalem. And then Stephen, one of the newly appointed deacons of the church, preaches a sermon to the religious leaders and basically tells them the truth, that they're all a bunch of stiff-necked rejectors of God. And they became so enraged and infuriated at Stephen that they took him outside the city and they stoned him to death. And from that incident then a persecution of the church began to take place, and and it caused the believers to leave Jerusalem, all except the apostles. And they went to all of the other regions. They went to Samaria. They went into Judea and to Samaria. And you know what they did as they went? They preached the gospel. And actually, God used the persecution to help the church obey him and fulfill the Great Commission. Do you know God does that sometimes? God uses all sorts of means in order to help us obey him. Sometimes we don't even know God is doing that. Uh, We just think someone's being mean, we're being persecuted. But in reality, God calls that persecution to arise so that the church would leave their comfort zone and begin to go and fulfill the Great Commission. Now, Saul of Tarsus was there at the death of Stephen, holding and guarding the clothing of the Pharisees who were throwing rocks at him so that their, their garments didn't get, get splattered with blood. And it's this Saul, that young man who was overseeing the death of Stephen that is now going to arrest Christians. So in the first part of Acts chapter 9, we see him, the Lord appears to him on the road. He's in Damascus He's waiting. Ananias goes. Ananias prays for him. And we talked about how God calls us to do things that we would never choose to do ourselves. That's what God did with Ananias. And he also did that with Paul or Saul. Saul, the persecutor of the way, became the preacher of the way. We also said that we serve a dangerous God who requires us to do dangerous things. Ananias resisted going to Saul because he knew Saul was dangerous. And we said this, that God is absolutely and always good, but God is not necessarily always safe. We pray for the persecuted church every week here because there are brothers and sisters who literally are laying down their lives for the gospel's sake, for the name of Christ. We don't have to deal with that type of persecution in our country. We can't imagine 
that someone would actually remove our head or end our life simply because we believe in Jesus. But that's happening all over the world, even now as we speak. So serving God can be dangerous. God is good, but God's not always safe. We must always remember that there is a far greater danger in disobeying God than there is in obeying God. You might say, well, I'm not going to serve Jesus because it could cost me my life. Listen, you are in far greater danger disobeying God, not serving God, than you ever possibly could be in serving Him, even if you were in a nation where they would remove your head because of your confession of faith in Jesus. They may take your head off, but they can't steal the eternal life that has been given to us in Jesus. Jesus said to to his disciples, which would include all of us, don't fear those who have power to kill the body, but fear him who has power to cast your soul into hell. So let's, uh, let's begin here in Acts chapter 9. I'm going to begin in verse 20. I'm going to read to verse 31. Acts 9 verse 20, immediately... Speaking of Saul, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwell in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. And he had spoken to him. And how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. And disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. Man, this is twice. They're, they're trying to kill Saul because he is preaching Jesus. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. And then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit... They were multiplied. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you have given us this good news. And it is the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. Not just for the Jew, but for every person, every nation, every tongue. Lord, you have sent your son to die 
for the world, not just Jews, not just those certain ethnic groups, but for the world. Lord, we are here today as a testimony that salvation is for the world. We thank you for the gospel and we ask that you would take your gospel that we will read and we will hear today and that you would work in our hearts. Mold us and shape us. We would be a people that would bring glory and honor to your name. That we would be like Saul of Tarsus. That we would rise up and we would preach and we would proclaim the Christ. That men might be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Immediately he preached the Christ. Preaching is a natural result of conversion. Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. Well, what does that mean? He was saved. What does that mean? It means he was changed. Immediately Saul preached the Christ. Preaching is proclamation. Specifically, it's proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. That's that's what we're talking about here today. You can be three years old and preach the gospel. You can be 33 year, years old and preach the gospel. You can be 103 years old and preach the gospel. And I believe that. We may preach it differently. We may preach it in a different context. It may look different. It may sound different. Saul rose up immediately and he preached the Christ. Preaching or proclaiming Christ is something every believer is called to do. Preaching is most often associated with people in professional ministry. People like me. I'm a pastor. My full-time work is to be a pastor, to be a preacher. But your full-time work may not be pastor, but your full-time work as a follower of Jesus is preacher. It might it might be better for you to understand this if we use what the word means, to proclaim. Your full-time job is to proclaim Christ. And we proclaim him in all sorts of ways, just like we talked about with the kids. We say to the kids, you proclaim Christ when you obey your parents. You proclaim Christ when you prefer your brother or your sister, when you're kind instead of being mean. Guess what? That doesn't just apply to little children. That applies to all of us. We proclaim Christ when we stand for the truth. We proclaim Christ when we obey God. We proclaim Christ when we come to worship and assemble together to worship the God of creation. We proclaim Christ, yes, when we confess the creed. Yes, when we sing our songs. Yes, when we hear the preaching of the word. We're proclaiming Christ. We proclaim Christ with our words. We proclaim Christ with our life. And we are to proclaim Christ in every way, in every shape, in every form possible. Preaching is not a work that should only be done behind pulpits or podiums by preachers or pastors or teachers. In fact, until there is more preaching done outside of the pulpit by people who are not professional ministers, we will continue to see the decline of the church in this nation. Proclaiming Christ is not something we should un, 
unnecessarily complicate. You've heard of the KISS principle, right? I don't need to tell you what it is. Keep it simple. We don't say that word loud. Keep it simple. We don't have to complicate the gospel. We make it much more complicated than we think. People say, well, I don't, I don't know the Bible. I don't know theology. I'm, I'm not a scholar. You don't have to be. Peter wasn't a scholar. Paul might have been a scholar, but guess what? Peter wasn't. James wasn't. John wasn't. The church is full of scholars, but not all scholars are preachers, and not all preachers are scholars. There's a lot of scholars out there not preaching the gospel. In fact, they're telling lies about the gospel and about the Christ. I brought my computer up here because I have, I was looking at something, uh, the Pew Research Center, they do research on all sorts of things. And sometimes we, you know, we hear all of these doom and gloom predictions about the church and everything. And we sometimes don't know what, what to believe. I just want to give you some hard numbers based on, I was a marketing major in school. I went to school to, to do business, not to become a pastor, but I ended up becoming a pastor. How about that? I mean, God really has a sense of humor, doesn't he? Who would have thought when I was studying marketing at the University of Texas, I would be preaching the gospel one day behind a pulpit in Taylor, Texas. It's, you know, it's just the way God works. We never know. So one of the things that, you know, we, we learned as marketing majors was all about research and statistics and numbers and all of these things. And so people are endlessly doing surveys of all kinds of things, especially in this season of elections and politics. But I think it's worth noting that the things that we very often hear about the decline of the church are worth paying attention to. Now, I want to qualify what I'm fixing to share with you by saying this, the gospel works and the gospel is working. Christ was born Unto us, a child was born. Unto us, a son was given. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Period. There's no, there's no but or if or qualifier there. That is a statement that God made through the prophet, and that is the truth. But remember, God, God plays the long game. We tend to not play the long game. We like the short game. We are very impatient people. We define things based on snapshots instead of segments that give us the proper context. We look at our life or other people's lives and we make judgments based on snapshots. You can't judge your life based on a snapshot. You can't judge your life based on days, weeks, 
I would submit you can't even judge your life accurately, fully, ultimately based on months and years. So God plays the long game. God is the God of creation. He knows what he's doing. Well, I'm going to give you a snapshot from 2009 to 2019. Now, this is in America. This is in the United States. Now, understand, out of the 35 to 36,000 people that were surveyed, the sample size actually is 35,556. And it varies from that all the way down to just under 13,000 people across our nation. And from 2009, when asked the question, basically, what is your, what, what is your religious affiliation? In 2009, 77% of people surveyed said they were Christians. In 2019, that number dropped to 65% in America. If we look at all the other faiths, one thing, and we might think, well, what's happening? It's not that people are becoming other faiths, because when we look at non-Christian faith, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, other they are static. From 2009 to 2019, when asked, the same percentage, 1% to 2% of the population says, I'm Muslim, I'm Jewish, I'm Hindu, I'm Buddhist. There was a slight increase, about 1% or less, of Hindus, and there was a 1% increase in other. Everything else stayed the same. Christianity dropped from 77 to 65. So my point is, people aren't becoming other religions. That's not what's happening. They are becoming what they call unaffiliated. Nothing in particular. That actually was a category. That was a response. What do you, what is your affiliate, who are or what are you affiliated with? Nothing in particular. Unaffiliated went from 17% in 2009 to 26% in 2019. And unaffiliated doesn't mean non-denominational. I mean, they don't affiliate with any religion. I'm not Christian. I'm not Jewish. I'm not Catholic. I'm not Mormon. I'm not, I'm not anything. I'm not affiliated. Atheist went from 2% in 2009 to 4% in 2019. Agnostics went from 3% in 2009 to 5% in 2019. Nothing in particular went from 12% in 2009 to 17% in 2019. So my point in all of this is to say...
that people are just, they're nothing. They're not affiliated. Now that leaves a lots, lots of things open, lots of unanswered questions, but what we know they're not identifying as are Christian. Now, it's, it's actually a very interesting survey. You could go in and it shows you from the silent generation, which are those that are born from 1928 to 1945. That's what they're called, the silent generation. That is, people born during that time had the greatest, 85% of people in that, of that generation born between 1925 and 1945 considered themselves Christian. From that point, it begins to decline. Now, what's my point in bringing all this up? Why is that happening? And I want to say this. Even as far back as you think 1928 is, compared to 19, or compared to 2020, that is still, I want to submit to you and large part, still a snapshot compared to eternity. It's less than a snapshot. But even if we just think about human history, the amount of time humans have been on earth, 1928 to 19, or to 2020, what is that? 92 years. 92 years out of 6,000 years of human history is a very small segment to look at. I say that because I'm not trying to make you hopeless. I want to encourage you to be hopeful, but I want to also encourage you that there's a reason why the decline, there's a real decline happening. Now, I don't know how many of those people that identify as Christians are really Christians or not. Chances are many of them are not. But, but that's beside my point. My point is, at one time in our culture, we had over 85% of the people that identified as Christians. Whether they were or not, they identified as that. Now we have 65% or less that identify as Christian. And the trend is going in opposite directions. The people who don't identify are growing. The people who identify are shrinking. How has that happened over the last 92 years? And it's becoming more drastic as time goes. Well, I'll, here's what I believe. How that has happened is the church has not done what we see Saul of Tarsus do when he was converted. When Saul got saved, when Saul was converted, immediately the Bible says he preached Christ. He said, yeah, but Saul was a, he was a preacher. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious guy. That was, that's what he did. That's beside the point. Peter was a fisherman. What's his excuse? And when Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, he laid down his fishing business and followed Jesus. And it's obvious, well, there's two things obvious to me right now. 
One of them is, I'm not even past the introduction to my sermon, so we'll probably have this message completed next week, okay? <laughs> so my sermon prep time is going to be much less this week. But the other thing that's obvious to me, that was obvious, think about Peter. When Peter and John are in the temple preaching, and they heal the lame man and create a stir in the temple, and they are proclaiming Christ to those people in the temple, the religious leaders who are listening to them, who then begin to interrogate them and threaten them and warn them to stop preaching the Christ. And as Peter is responding to their threats, these religious leaders say amongst themselves, these are illiterate, uneducated fishermen from Galilee. How did they know? Here's what they said. We can tell by their accent what part of the country they come from. If you didn't see the CNN uh, clip from the uh, CNN commentator Don Lemons and the two people that were with him making fun of the rubes from the south and they began to mock with these fake southern accents implying that people who have southern accents are stupid. I mean, that's, that's basically what they did. That's what they said. That, that's, what the, that's what the religious leaders were saying about Peter and John. Listen to them. Listen to their accents. These are a couple of country hicks. They're not even educated. What are they doing? But you know what, you know what they said then? You know what the Bible says then, though? They knew, though, they had been with Jesus. It was obvious, not only that what part of the country they came from because of their accent. But what, what more importantly was obvious is that they had been with Jesus. The question is, do people know what part of the country you're from because of your accent? Fine, great, who cares? What's more important is, do people know whether you have been with Jesus? The boldness of those apostles, the passion of those apostles, the proclamation of Christ by those apostles spoke to everyone around them that they had been with Jesus. They proclaimed Christ just like Saul did. When his eyes were healed and he was restored, he rose up immediately and he preached the Christ. Do you know why we are seeing a steady decline of people in this nation who confess to be Christians? Because the church is not preaching Christ. That's why. I don't know how you came to faith in Christ but I came to faith in Christ because someone told me. Someone preached to me, not just with their words, but with their life. I was visiting with someone the other day, and they asked me how I 
came to faith in Christ. And I can't tell people how I came to faith in Christ without telling them about my, my dear sister who's in heaven now. Her life was so anti-Christ until she was converted and saved. And she went from, she was like Saul, man. She, she was opposed. It was like night and day. Her life was so radically changed that 150 miles away, I noticed. And I would go home on the weekend to try to figure out what had happened to my sister because this was not the same person that I knew. And you know what happened? Jesus happened. When Jesus saved her, when she was converted, her life changed, radically changed. I can't, I can't even, I can't overemphasize that. Just trust me, it radically changed. When Saul was converted, when Saul was saved, you know that his life radically changed. When we are saved, our lives should radically change. Now, I'm not saying we don't have struggles and we don't have issues. Because we do. My sister did. I do. I did and I do have struggles and issues. We all do. I'm not talking about becoming perfect. I'm talking about becoming radically changed. I'm talking about our desires changing. I'm talking about at the very least that we are struggling with the fact that I still have desires that are anti-Christ and contrary to the gospel and contrary to the righteousness and the holiness that God has imparted to me in Jesus Christ. The reason we're seeing a decline in the number of people that profess to be Christians is because true Christians are not proclaiming the gospel with their words or with their lives. Church attendance is on the decline. And now we have people who profess to be Christians who say, well, it doesn't really matter whether you go to church or not. Really, where is that in the Bible? Where do we see that anywhere in the Bible, Old or New Testament, where God says it doesn't matter whether you assemble or not? He commanded them to assemble in the Old Testament, and he commands us to assemble in the New Testament. Why? Because our assembling is a proclamation of Christ. It's a proclamation of the gospel. It's a witness to the world out there. I can tell you, when I was a kid, we did not go to church. I didn't grow up in church. I never read a Bible until after I... I didn't even own a Bible until after I had submitted myself to Jesus that night in East Austin in a house. Not a church, but a house. And it was days later after I had professed faith in Christ and became what I commonly said, I, I got saved. Because I did get saved. Then I bought a Bible. Never had a Bible before then. Never read a Bible before then. 
But you know, funny thing is, I thought I knew enough about the Bible to know what the Bible was all about. I thought I knew enough about the Bible to say, safely say, you know, the Bible, uh, you know. It's uh, just some old book. Bunch of old stoners wrote sitting around the campfire somewhere. You know, the Bible's like every other book. It's all the same God, just a different way to get there. Doesn't really matter what you believe. Funny how we know about so many things that we don't really know about. But when we get saved, our lives should change. This is what happened to Paul. This is what happened to Saul. This is what happens to every disciple of Jesus. And the change in our life should be noticeable. Not because we're perfect, because no one is. Not because we don't struggle, because we all do. Not because we never fail, because we will continually fail. I promise you that. But because we realize something that in spite of my failure, in spite of my falling, in spite of my struggles, in spite of my sin, there is a Savior who has saved me. I was dead and now I'm alive. I was in darkness, but now I am light in the Lord. I was one thing, but now I am another thing. And if that has happened to us, our lives have got to communicate that. And we can't make excuses to continue living in sin and to continue living less than lives when God literally gave all to save us. Jesus left it all on the cross so that we could be saved. And he expects no less of us. We don't get out of this thing alive. In any way, shape, or form. And I'm not even talking about physical death. We're all going to die one day. But I'm talking about the death that Christ invites us to experience in the cross. We think, oh, Jesus did it for us. He paid the price. Yes, he did pay the price. He paid the price so that we could die the death he died in order to live the life he lives. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple... Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you don't want to be my disciple, then don't don't take up your cross. And don't follow me. And we have a lot of people, I think, who call themselves Christians, who profess to be following Jesus, but there's no cross in sight. And Jesus is somewhere, I don't know where, he's somewhere way down the road, I can't even see him. But I'm professing to be a follower of him. If you don't take anything else away from this message today, take this away. If you have been converted, if you have been saved, your life must change. It has to. It doesn't change all at once. It doesn't change without struggle. It doesn't change without all of us walking together, living life together. This is why a body is important. Because we were never created to do this by ourselves Just like my hand cannot function apart from the rest of my body. You cannot function apart from a body. 
You can't do it. You can deceive yourself into thinking you can. You can lie to yourself and convince yourself you can. But I'm telling you what, you cannot. Because God didn't create you that way. God didn't birth you that way to begin with. And he didn't born you again so that you could do your own thing, just you and Jesus. No way. And the problem we're seeing in our culture is that the church has believed the lie and the church has bought into the lie and she's bought into the convenient lies that enable her to remain in her sin and live comfortable lives. Just let me live, make it through this life here and just get me to heaven and I'm good. Sorry, that's not what it means to be a Christian. I apologize that I didn't get farther into my message to show you why that is and how that all works out. But guess what? Next week, that's what we're going to do. Okay? Praise God. So I invite you to the table. I want to invite you to come to the table. If you trust Jesus, come to this table. I'm not telling you to come to this table because you're perfect, because you've never made a mistake. I'm not telling you to come to this table because you're not struggling with sin. You may be struggling with sin right now. Give your sin to Jesus. Repent. Change your mind. Give it to him and know that only his blood can wash it away. Leave it with him and come to the table. Trust in Jesus. He has made a way where there was no way. I'll never forget the words of the woman who led me to faith in Christ that night. July 19th, 1984. She said, you're not saved and you're not forgiven because you feel saved or you feel forgiven. You're saved and forgiven because of what Jesus did. We don't always feel saved and we don't always feel forgiven because our sin is ever present in our minds. And this is why the Bible says we are to renew our minds to the truth. That's not instant. That's a process. But until you begin that process, until you begin that journey of renewing your mind to the truth as it is in Jesus, you will struggle with your sin. You will struggle with your guilt. You will struggle with your shame. So church, repent. Give it to Jesus. Begin the process of renewing your mind you would have the hope of the gospel and that you would be able to communicate that hope through your life and through your words, through your very being. That men and women just like us would have the same hope we have. Our hope is in Jesus. Make him known. Proclaim him boldly, freely. No matter what it costs you, proclaim Christ. He is our only hope in life and in death. Amen.